Episode 3, The ANC Begins. Hey, dobardan, molibwanji, zdravo, how's it, allo? I'm Ruthie. And from Sarajevo to Red Africa, welcome to our podcast about the people in history of the real Third World. Forget the telethons. The phrase the Third World came about as an act of defiance when several smaller and mainly post-colonial nations decided that they did not want to choose between the Western First World or the Eastern Second World, but to choose their own third way. Alone, they couldn't rival the superpowers, but together they could be a force to be reckoned with. The nations of the Third World weren't merely poverty-stricken post-colonial backwaters. They had traditions of thousands of years of literature. They were the cradle of humankind and civilization and they had fought hard battles for self-determination. And, even more, the events of the world today directly descend from the Third World's past. These stories have been overlooked long enough, and we're going to tell them to you here. On January 8, 1912, a gathering of remarkable men, and at least one woman, took place in the town of Bloemfontein in what is now South Africa. The men present were of the native African elite, John Dube, who was one of the first Zulu authors and printed a newspaper, his nephew, Pixlika Isakaseme, who was the second Native African who qualified as a lawyer in South Africa, Sol Plati, who published a native language newspaper and wrote the first book in English by a native from South Africa, and Charlotte Maheke, the first black woman in South Africa to obtain a college degree. Now, really quick, I feel that I should give you a quick note here. Linguistically, I am completely unable to pronounce the cliques that are a part of many names in the story we will tell today. I've tried. In fact, I lived in South Africa for several years, during which I attempted to master this pronunciation every morning during the school drop-offs. I did not master it. And I can honestly say that my attempts to use these pronunciations are extremely distracting and more disrespectful in that distraction than if I change the pronunciation slightly. I always recommend that listeners use our podcasts as a jumping-off point to learning more and a quick Google of native speakers discussing these incredible men and women using the correct pronunciations is a very good way to start. But back to 1912. These incredible men and women had a few things in common. First, they were all descended from the royalty of different tribes in South Africa. Sol Platyi even wrote a full report of his ancestry while he was in England, saying, my father and mother are both descended from King Moralong, father from the senior house, now deposed, and mother from the junior house, still very proud of its royal state. But Plotyi, royal descent notwithstanding, carried his opposition to segregation forward personally as well. He married a woman outside his tribe, despite great opposition from her parents. By all accounts, the marriage was extremely successful, and Plotyi loved his wife deeply. His diary during the Boer War shows the absolute heartache of a young man separated from the love of his life. Plotyi, like the other founders in 1912, showed a practice-what-you-preach approach to his political views that kept him in touch with those he was striving to lead. These men and women were fantastically educated. The majority of them attended university in the United States, while all of them came into lasting contact with American activists like Marcus Garvey, Booker T. Washington, and W.E.B. Du Bois. Pixlika Isakaseme was educated at Oxford and Great Britain as well, but they did not limit their education to a classroom. 
Each continued through their lifetimes, writing, reading, and studying. They were intellectuals in the truest sense of the word, but practical intellectuals who did not write grandiose ideas they expected others to do the hard work of implementing. They were full participants in the society they were attempting to bring about, and to this end they very much utilized peaceful protest. They were not looking to tear down a system, but to become full participants within it, and with that as the goal, they needed a system in place to join. Peaceful protest can work, as we'll discuss in regards to Charlotte Maheke and the past laws, but it is unfortunately not a guarantee, as we can see with the solid entrenchment of apartheid laws after 1948. And here I need to make another quick aside before we go further. You'll notice that we talked about past laws. So past laws in this case is not a verb, it's a noun. A pass, something like the hall passes we had to use to go to the bathroom in school, this was required for black native Africans to go from one place to another in South Africa. It was deeply humiliating, and it was something that was one of the first things that they protested against. So, if I sound like a fanboy at this point in the podcast, I have to admit that it's because I am. These were certainly not perfect people. There's something to the charge made at them more than once that they were not representative of the situation of natives in Africa at their time, being both better educated, more worldly, and having a higher status. Although they were concerned with the morals of society, John Dubé himself had a child with a student at one point. And as they watched racial segregation get more and more entrenched in South Africa, these optimistic leaders became rightfully demoralized. So I can repeat again, these were not perfect people, but they were brilliant. They were visionaries with hope at a time of profound change in both their nation and the nations of the world at the same time, and they were people of action. They lived through the transition of their pastoral world industrializing, and they witnessed their culture move from a pre-literate to a literate state. This is an enormous legacy that should be a greater part of world discussions. The organization created in Bloemfontein in 1912 was not yet called the African National Congress. That change would come in 1923. And it did not allow women either. It was officially only open to black men until 1943. But the South African Native National Congress, or SANNC, was the beginning of everything that came next in an unbroken line that led to Nelson Mandela standing at the grave of John Dubé and saying, I am here before you, Mr. President, to report to you that South Africa is free, and now may your soul rest in peace. But to get to Mandela, we have to start somewhere. As an entirely arbitrary point, I'll start in the 1890s with a telegraph operator and interpreter named Sol Plotky. Plotky had been educated at mission schools and exhibited such a talent for learning that he was given private tuition, not only in school subjects, but also in piano, violin, and singing. This served him exceptionally well going forward, as when testing to work as a telegraph operator, he received the highest marks of anyone who tested in Dutch. Dutch was not his only language. It wasn't even his first language. His family spoke Setswana at home. In fact, Plotky spoke more than eight languages fluently as an adult. His English fluency was so pronounced that Plotky translated four of Shakespeare's plays into Setswana. Two translations still remain today, 
and Defosso-Fosso, A Comedy of Errors, is considered to be the gold standard of linguistic translation. His proficiency in Dutch and English, as well as his job as a telegraph operator, qualified him for a seemingly providential quirk of fate. Under the qualified franchise laws of the Cape Colony, he was able to vote even though he was a native African. From 1897 until the South African Union in 1910, Sol Plaki was able to cast a vote to determine the policies and priorities of the nation he lived in, and this profoundly shaped his views and visions. Many of the native African leadership sided with the British in the Boer Wars because they believed that under British leadership there would be a movement toward equality for natives. Plaki was among those holding these beliefs, and he served as an interpreter during the Siege of Mafeking. His diary at this time was published about 40 years after his death and gives a direct view of life during the siege as it happened, as well as the personality of people such as Colonel Baden-Powell, you might not see if looking solely in the archives of the Boy Scouts. But this hope of equality enforced by the British did not come to pass with their victory over the Boers. In fact, the residual anger of the Afrikaners after the war did not abate in any way. It carried forward with terrible consequence for non-whites in 1948. But even before that, when the South Africa Act of 1909 allowed for the 1910 creation of the Union of South Africa, Native affairs passed under the aegis of the national government. Rights enjoyed by those in the Cape Colony, such as Plaki's ability to vote, were removed. The ability of Native Africans to move about, buy land, and choose where to live were removed. The slide toward apartheid picked up momentum, and it would get much worse. In 1911, Pixley Kaisa founded the South African Native Farmers Association. The goal of this organization was to make it easier for Native Africans to become personally independent by encouraging them to buy land. As a direct result, the Native Land Act was instituted in 1913, and this act was draconian. It was the first major legislation legalizing segregation when it was passed, and it remained in place until 1991. Natives were left with less than 10% of South African land, although it was later amended to 13%, land which they were not permitted to buy or sell in any form. Furthermore, the law made it illegal for blacks to sell land to whites and for whites to sell land to blacks. In effect, the color lines were drawn. There would be no moving from them until 1991. Organized one year before the Land Act, the SANNC was able to quickly mobilize and sent a delegation to the United Kingdom to beg for an intervention on behalf of natives in South Africa. They received a lot of attention, but nothing came of it. The inexorable role toward apartheid continued. No one was going to intervene on behalf of Africa. But the founders of the SANNC kept pushing. In 1913, Charlotte Maheke had a breakout and hard-earned success. Past laws for Native African men had existed since the 1890s and even earlier in some places. But now these laws were extended to women. The result was horrifying. Women and children were held up at checkpoints as they rummaged desperately through the parcels of everyday life to find battered passes. They were harassed and assaulted, searched and humiliated, employed at a much higher rate for upper-class families as housekeepers, cooks, nannies, and so on, South African society began to sputter and grind to a halt. Maheke fought back by organizing enormous protests against the past laws. Without cooks, cleaners, nannies, and the female structure that kept society moving along at higher levels, nothing could be done. After an inconclusive meeting with Prime Minister Botha, 
More than 700 women marched to Bloemfontein City Hall where they burned their passbooks. It worked. Women were exempt from pass laws until 1956, after the full institution of apartheid laws. But the lack of progress for Native Africans took its toll on the men and women working toward equality. In 1906, Pixlika Isakaseme gave a much-lauded speech in America called The Regeneration of Africa. Its tone is proud and hopeful. In it, he says, the African already recognizes his anomalous position and desires change. The brighter day is rising upon Africa. Already I seem to see her chains dissolved, her desert plains red with harvest, her Abyssinia and her Zululand seats of science and religion, reflecting the glory of the rising sun from the spires of their churches and universities. Her Congo and her Gambia whitened with commerce, her crowded cities sending forth the hum of business, and all her sons employed in advancing the victories of peace, greater and more abiding than the spoils of war. It was the speech of a man who sees better days coming, and fully believes that he will be a part of bringing them to pass. In 1921, it was a much less ebullient and hopeful Sol Plotky who addressed the issue that was salaciously splashed across white newspaper headlines, the issue of sex and skin color. Titled The Moat and the Beam, an epic on sex relationship twixt white and black in British South Africa, Plotkia used a biblical parable to point out the one-sided nature and misrepresentation of these stories, which were used to further oppress the Native Africans via legislation and vigilante action. In regards to the sexual relations that exist between white and black people in South Africa, there are some white men who are never so happy as when descanting upon the moral decadence of South African natives. That is to say, they demand for the native a higher ethical standard than they themselves practice. Socially conservative, these words must have been extremely difficult for Palaki to write. And yet it is a sign of the times and the ominous rumblings of what he saw coming that he felt they needed to be sad. Palaki died in 1932, and more than 1,000 people attended his funeral. Meheke died in 1939, Dube in 1946. Of these founders, only Pixlika Isakaseme survived long enough to see the takeover of the apartheid government. In 1948 in South Africa, the United Party lost the election to the HNP. Very few colored or Asians were able to vote in this election, and native blacks had been completely disenfranchised for years. The HNP had run a campaign promising the absolute segregation in all areas of life of different races. Their term for this, apartheid, has become firmly ensconced in a modern vocabulary of horrors. Often used were the very examples of quote-unquote black peril that Sol Plotky had written so eloquently and precisely tearing down in his Moton Beam essay. The issues of black Africans moving from rural to city areas, as well as the scare tactic of job stealing, was constantly pushed on voters as well. Smuts, the leader of the United Party, was portrayed as aligned with socialism due to his working relationship with Stalin during the Second World War, a war tremendously unpopular with the Afrikaner members of South African society who resented the hardships it enforced upon them. The future that the founders of the SANNC had tried so desperately to prevent came to pass. Their efforts to stop such a future did not work, but it is because of the foundation they laid, their vision and action, that the world changed in South Africa in 1991, and yet many are little recognized even within South Africa herself. 
Part of this is an issue with gatekeeping history. While we can easily find books and TV series and movies about Nelson Mandela, and rightfully so, there are few devoted to introducing the world to Sol Plaki, whose own written body of work is both vast and completely readable even today. Books that do exist are often out of print or prohibitively expensive for the average reader. This situation desperately needs to be changed. The history of such leaders belongs to everyone, not just the few who are able to access crumbling archives due to the quirks of fate of funding or locational ease of research. Platia's book, Moody, is available in electronic format through several vendors for a low-ish price. The first book written in English by a native South African, it is groundbreaking in its presentation of a pre-white society entering the Mfakane during the reign of Shaka Zulu. It is written from the African perspective, using many of Plakia's own ancestors as characters and written with the direct influence of at least one family member who lived through this period herself. But Moody isn't written out of anger or to blame. In fact, in his preface, Plakia himself wrote, This book has been written with two objectives in view, viz. a. to interpret to the reading public one phase of the back of the native mind, and b. with the reader's money to collect and print for Bantu schools Setswana folktales, which the spread of European ideas are fast being forgotten. Moody is eminently readable. Its prose and style as well as the subject matter hold up fantastically over the last 100 years, and I would venture to say that understanding South Africa now is greatly dependent on understanding South Africa then. So let's start here. Please read more, go back further, and continue to study the map so that the legacies of the Third World are no longer lost in the shuffle of the great powers. Until next time, zdravo, salani buino oke, ciao, au revoir, vidimo se, tutsin.